thing that is really at the heart of my work is challenging those boxes, challenging those binaries, challenging those borders, who I think are very artificial and very questionable. Content warnings for this episode include ableism, sanism, sanism, and hetero cisnormativity, transmissia, and trauma. Uh, Jennifer would like to acknowledge the Indigenous peoples and the unceded lands that the producers, hosts, and guests have lived and dwelt upon. Today, we honor, both of us honor, uh, the Ojibwe and Dakota lands. We honor the elders, the human, plant, and animal ancestors of these lands and celebrate the living descendants of these people. May all beings tend these lands for the goodness of the next seven generations and beyond. Meowdy folks, welcome to Genderful, a talk show interviewing gender-diverse folks about their special interests. The name of our show celebrates that gender expansiveness is wonderful. Hi, I'm Gender Master, and my pronouns are they, them. Hi, I'm Atlas of Phoenix, and my pronouns are also they, them. The focus of our show is to interview trans, non-binary, agender, and gender-diverse people regarding their special interests, passion projects, and resources for the gender-diverse community. We want our audience to know that this show is hosted by two folks who also identify as non-binary, transmasculine, neurodivergent, and disabled with the passion for telling trans stories. We invite you to remember that we are whole people with robust lives, friendships, challenges, and successes. We love and are loved, and we are delighted to share these stories with you. As always, we kindly remind our listeners that no person is a monolith of their identities, your identities can change over time and are valid every step of the way. And if you think you're gender diverse, you are gender diverse. There are no social or medical prerequisites to be included in the community. Welcome to Genderful episode 87. This week, our guest, Alex Yantafi, they, them, is chatting with us about neurodivergence, gender, and sexuality. Alex is an author public speaker, therapist, and host of the show, Gender Stories Podcast. Welcome to Genderful, Alex. Well, thank you so much for having me on Genderful. I'm so nervous and so excited to be here. <laughs> I'm nervous and excited too, so we're, we're of two of the same feather, I guess. So Good it's company. <laughs> Good company. Yeah. Oh, this is perfect. All right. I just want to shoot off with this next question, or this first question, but I do want to thank you for being here. Um, I'm looking forward to interviewing you today. Um, I wish Gender could be here as well, and I'm sure they do too. Um, so thanks for coming through. Uh, let's see, the first question I ask is the question we ask everybody first, which is what might be some things that you can trace back to your youth that indicated that you might be gender diverse one day? Yeah, I love that question. Well, I remember, you know, there's a lot of photos of me dressed like a little boy when I was young. You know, I always loved having really short hair. And I know those are kind of very stereotypical things, but bear in mm -hmm. mind that I was born very early in the 70s in Italy. And so kind of always wearing short hair was definitely not gender typical um, when I kind of was when I was growing up. And I also remember kind of how happy I was if people thought I was a boy, say that I was like playing in the park and like other little kids were like, what's your name? And, and I used Alex, which is a diminutive of my given name for forever. So I would use that, which is kind of gender neutral. And people would assume I was a boy and that made me really happy. I didn't know what that meant, of course. It, I just knew that it made me happy. And even when I was like in my teenage years my dad would take me to the barbers to get my hair cut which was definitely not typical um in kind of the 70s and 80s <laughs> and um and I remember just the feeling of gender euphoria at having the haircut that I wanted and even on the bus if people thought I was a boy um because they were behind me and then I would speak and they were like oh I'm sorry I was like no it's great I feel great when people think I'm a boy and it took me a minute to realize that not every other um, teenage girl, which is how I was presenting and thought I was at the time, would be euphoric of being taken as a boy, mm -hmm. you know? And so those are just kind of some little points. And, and when I look back and, and saw those photos, I'm like, how could people not see it? I do look like a little boy, right? There are photos where I'm like six or seven years old. And even when I'm wearing a dress, I look like I'm in drag. Uh, genuinely, like I have a photo of me in a like super cute pink dress. And then in one of the slow cars, like a kid's car on the carousel at the park. And I'm like, you know, stretching my stuff, like I'm a dude. 
at like six years old. <laughs> so those are just some, a few moments. Yeah. That's when you've got the confidence at six to do that kind of thing. Right. <laughs> now you my confidence has been going down since then. <laughs> but yeah. I mean, yeah, I think like when we're six, we know ourselves, um, mm -hmm. although we don't know anything at all. And I feel like I'm desperately trying to get back to that. Um, one of my favorite things was uh, a fortune cookie that I got um, that I'm going to read now. It's upside down in a frame. And that's what I like about it because it was supposed to be right side up. But nice. when I turn it around, it was upside down. And it says, a truly great person never puts away the simplicity of a child. Love and that's, that's beautiful. Right. And then when it, you know, like the fact that it's upside down makes it even, be even better. So I was like, oh, you should fix that. I'm like, no, you're missing the point. <laughs> I How love your, that. Yes, right. How has your relationship to gender evolved over time? Oh, so much, you know, and I feel it hasn't even been done evolving, which I know it's weird to say, but, you know, I'm in my 50s now, but I feel my, under uh, first of all, I've been always fascinated by gender. Um, I've realized, um, you know, as a late diagnosed neurodivergent person, that gender and humans generally are my special interests. And so gender never made a lot of sense to me, right? Even when I was a little kid or a teenager, it was like, there's something suspect. Um, in a concept that can be so easily uh, manipulated or uh, it can, you know, if I change my haircut or the way I, I dressed or the way I behaved, people would read me as a completely different gender. And so I always knew there was something suspect about this idea that there are always only two genders and that there are things that we're supposed to do that align with our, with our gender assigned at birth. And then, of course, that was my understanding as like a kid and an adolescent. And then I went on to do a PhD in what we would now call gender studies. But at the time, it was still called women's studies, which, again, ages me quite a bit. And because I was so fascinated by um, this idea of gender and what it meant, and there was some sense inside me that I didn't really quite fit what people expected of me because of my gender. And I couldn't quite make sense of it, right? For a long time, I tried to come at it from a very feminist perspective. It's because of misogyny and I have to just love myself harder, right? My, uh, per my paternal aunt, so my dad's sister was a feminist in the 70s and 80s. And so she gave me all this feminist literature. And of course, this was still very much second wave feminism, right? So I was like, this is just internalized self-hatred, you know, that I'm kind of more uh, leaning more towards masculinity. And so really worked on kind of celebrating my femininity, celebrating womanhood, and it just was never enough, you know. And so eventually um, I really came to this realization that I was genderqueer and then eventually kind of came out as trans as well as genderqueer. But my understanding of gender has always been pretty fluid. Um, I think it's just the level at which I've been able to critically engage with what gender is. You know, it's changed over time, of course. And I feel like it's still changing. Every time I talk to somebody who has a gender identity that's different from mine, for example, I learn so much. I've learned so much from my trans feminine siblings, for example, right? Uh, you know, in the last 20 years, being in community with other trans folks, you know, I've learned so much from people who have grown up like here in the US rather than me in Italy, right? And how different our experiences are. And so I think that for me, my understanding of gender, my own, but also the social cultural aspect of gender is forever evolving. I don't know that there's ever an end point, right? Um, right. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I'm not sure there's an end point um, yeah. for myself either, you know, and... Um, I'm making a movie about my transition and mental health journey. And, um, you know, I, I'm, the more I d dive into it, the, the more I start looking at footage that I've shot, I just feel like, yeah, you're onto something that actually sort of demystifies the whole process. And this show um, that Ginger B. Elster put together is, is a big key part of that too, you know. And I haven't listened to your show, Gender Stories, but I imagine it's the same thing too. Like we're all questioning what is the point of gender. Exactly. And why put all those limitations on one another, right? And, right? and I learned myself even from my own kids who are cisgender, but you know, like um, 
my oldest, my daughter, and the stories I share always with our consent, for example, really taught me like how hard it is if you are a girl who both loves like science and math and uh, technology and is also very feminine, for example, that there is an incom incompatibility, right, in a way, um, and feeling that pressure of being one thing or another. And then thankfully, having been brought up in a household full of queer people, <laughs> really questioning um, all those kind of expectations that people put on her and finding a way to be herself. Um, mm -hmm. But I think that the gender binary hurts everybody. Uh, obviously in very different ways, but I think it is pretty painful for everybody. Yeah, I would really agree with that. It's um, it's just, you know, like I recently finished a film called Ordinary and I question identities of all kind. And um, I cover all the identities that I supposedly have that have been linked um, to my DNA, but also have been thrust on me uh, by society. And, you know, my only thing is like, I just want to exist and, and feel joy and be happy. and you know, part of that means like kind of dipping out of society for a while and just figuring out what makes me happy. So, uh, yeah. So thanks for sharing that. It sounds like one heck of a journey that you've been on these last, was it 52 years now? Yeah, 52 years. And I, I feel like I'm still on it. And yeah, uh, who knows where I'll be, you know, hopefully if I get a few more years, we know where I'll be in a few more years and what I'll right. think of my gender or gender in general. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I'm 52 as well. I uh, hopefully turn 53 in November. And so it's like, you know, I'm just, I was recounting the other day um, that I've always been happy. I just had things that have gotten in the way that have been serious stressors and created trauma um, that have left me having to deal with these things. Um, but my natural state is happiness and joy, you know, and it's like yeah. surrounding yourself with people that also have that natural state space and and um that they're not performative about it because it seems to mean that they still have some work to do and it's just like that's fine everybody's got work to do i have work to do you know it's just a matter of like is your luggage compatible and that kind of thing so you don't take on other people's luggage and other people's um, issues you know because it becomes codependent at that point um and then you lose yourself taking care of other people too you know and that can happen a lot particularly in the uh, trans community where people can kind of lose themselves taking care of other people um, so that they don't necessarily have to take care of themselves. And that's something mm -hmm. that doesn't really get talked a lot about because it's, again, rocking the boat to have these conversations. But, um, you know, it starts with how has your re relationship to gender evolved over time? <laughs> you mm -hmm. know, and that's a big, heavy question to think about, you know, at least once every six months. So, Absolutely. So yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I really appreciate it. Uh, let me switch topics here. Neurodivergence, gender, and sexuality. How does your cultural background intersect with and are affect your gender experience? Yeah, that's a, that's another great question. Uh, in so many ways, you know, uh, for example, you know, being brought up uh, in Italy in the 70s and 80s, like nobody ever kind of um, thought it was super weird if I was like, holding hands with my friends were the same gender that I was perceived as at the time, right? And I know mm -hmm. that gender and sexuality are two different things, but they're also kind of connected, right, in some yes. ways. And mm -hmm. um, and so things like being really like affectionate and close and holding hands and going to the bathroom together with your girlfriends, in air quotes, because that's how I was perceived at the time, wasn't seen um, as anything that, like as anything gay or queer, for example. And also, even the fact that, uh, you know, I liked going to the barber and having my hair cut short, it was like, that's just what Alex does. You know, there wasn't any meaning given to it. Mm -hmm. And and I think in a way that gave me a freedom when I was growing up to explore what I felt comfortable with. Um, mm -hmm. I even joined uh, the Boy Scouts at the experimental old gender troop when I was like a what would be middle school, early high school. And so I joined mm -hmm. that troop and it was like an old gender troop. And that was another really wonderful experience for me. And so wow. there's some ways in which I had a freedom, which sometimes I wonder, you know, if I've been brought up like in the US or the UK, where I lived for like 15 years in my um, 20s and very early 30s, like would that have been different? You know what I mean? If I've been picked yeah. on at school, I mean, I got picked on for other reasons. <laughs> but not mm -hmm. around gender and sexuality stuff. And so in a way that um, that spared me also from some trauma that I see people who have been picked on and bullied from a young age for their gender expression 
Um, mm -hmm. I think that spared me that trauma in some ways, if that makes sense. Um, yes. And yeah, that's a huge piece for me. You know, it wasn't until I was in my early 20s and I was living in the UK um, and my best friend came to visit and we were holding hands, going around Covent Garden and somebody called us dykes and that had never happened to me before. And my friend is also very straight. Uh, but, mm. you know, we were both like so shocked because it was not an experience we ever had in Italy, right? And mm -hmm. I, I had just been living in the UK for like a few months at the time. I was like 22. It would be right. another couple of years before I came to term with my own sexuality and started coming out as queer. And so mm -hmm. if that had happened when I was like 10, 12, 15, right? What would that, how would that have impacted me? And of course, I don't know. I didn't leave that reality but I think mm -hmm. I truly believe that was because of the cultural context when I was brought up in if that makes sense it does, on, the, yeah. on the other hand <laughs> um also my mom is from Sicily and we spent a lot of time there because that's the only vacations we had was going to see my great aunts um mm. I also internalized a lot of misogyny right there were very strict expectations around gender you know um, you know, keep your legs together. You don't sit like that. Ladies don't sit like that, right? All these expectations, who other people's mm -hmm. needs first, right? Uh, mm -hmm. What will people think if you walk around with a boy in my, because my great aunts lived in a village and everybody would know if I walked around the square with a boy without anybody else, by the time I go home, my great aunts would know that it happened and I would get yeah. talking to, right? And I remember, and also I was brought up Catholic, um, so lots of um, really misogynistic ideas about gender mm -hmm. from the pulpit, um, mm -hmm. you know, in terms right. of priests. And so that also had an impact, of course. So it's complicated, right? There were ways mm -hmm. in which there was kind of a freedom and uh, of expression, and there were other ways in which there was um, a lot of oppression and kind of a very pretty tight gender box in some ways. Mm -hmm. Yes, you you said that you didn't have that experience um, as a, as a teen, a preteen, mm -hmm. of being called a dyke or or gay or any of those uh, things that mm -hmm. you know people are trying to figure out their own sexuality, but instead of focusing on taking care of themselves, they'd rather ID you and you know that exactly. ID doesn't necessarily fit. And I did have that experience um, myself here in the states, and it was just like everyone in high school was like, you know, don't talk to you know this person because they're gay, and I'm just like. I don't even, what is gay? What does that really mean? You know, but I remember yeah. being something like seven or eight or something. And David Bowie had just dropped Ziggy Stardust and the spiders from Mars. Yes. And my, my mom was like, David Bowie's bisexual. And I was like, David Bowie's bisexual. So I didn't even know what bisexual was, but I just thought, if it looks like this, then I'm totally bisexual. You know what I mean? <laughs> I do because I mean, David Bowie, Prince in Prince. Italy, Renato Zero, right? I, those were the people I watched and I was like, that is me. Even That's though me. they were like, right? I was like, I see me. Like, I see that yeah. gender expression, right? Yeah. And um, yeah, it was so exciting during those times, right? And I was like, yes. I don't, I would like you, I was like, I don't even know fully what that means, but there seems to be so much freedom and expansion in this. Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah. I mean, I uh, started listening to Prince in 1979 and, um, miraculously came to Minneapolis and started working for her you know like I think it was like 15 years later or something like that and and it was a great experience um but you know when you're up close like that um it's different it's different than looking at a poster or listening to an album when you're yes. like you know like my little story is of having an interaction with him uh that another bandmate had brought him over to me and um we were just casually talking and hanging out and it was like, he was just chill and he wasn't like Prince. He was just this guy that everyone was fussing yeah. around and trying to get the video up and going and make the music video. And um, he said he needed a glass. And I was just like, oh, okay. And we were at this, we were at a set and there was mm -hmm. like glasses behind me. I was at a bar and they were sitting in the stools on the other side. And I said, oh, I'll get you a glass, sir. So I turn around and I go to grab a martini glass and they're all like glued together. <laughs> and then, you know, I, I'm holding the glass and I'm just like, he can totally see what you're doing. So can Morris. Just just turn around and admit it and then offer to get a glass from the kitchen, which is exactly what I did. I was very cool about it. And then he just chuckled and said, no, that's okay. You know, and it was just like that moment of like seeing him on a poster and then seeing him in real life and then 
having that moment and just being like when he passed away you know like i think i cried for two or three days straight yeah. and the whole world turned purple from sydney to you know alaska all over the world mm -hmm. you know and it's still a thing that we do april 21st you know i think more yeah. so than his birthday june 7th but yeah like looking at these people just be themselves you know both of them ironically died the same year within months of mm -hmm. each other it's just like it was pretty powerful because they really smashed a lot of the whole premise around gender and then yeah. it gave us people like us a voice to do the same thing too which gets passed down to millennials gen zers and and gen alpha and i feel like mm -hmm. by the time we get to gen beta a lot of this stuff just won't be an issue anymore you know? absolutely already and, i feel like gen z has such a different idea of gender than oh yeah we did as gen xers you know <laughs> oh yeah definitely definitely and the the uh, freedom to admit their emotions the way that as generation yeah. xers we didn't have you know it's just like oh, yeah. if you look at the movie breakfast club it really tells a lot about our generation where we're just too cool for school you know and it's just like it's just like no we actually need to feel our feelings which is what we're doing now like we're going to therapy and we're like doing all the stuff now that um our millennial friends and gen z friends are doing now you know so it's just we're building that arc so that we can be stronger together and i think that's beautiful and um, this is a perfect segue yeah. into this because I also happened to find out uh, that I had ADHD and autism last year. And so my question for you is, tell us your story about getting diagnosed with ADHD later in life. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, yes. <laughs> um, yes, I was like, oh, where do I begin? Because my brain was going into so many different directions when you were talking, you know, I went oh. back, which is very right very ADHD I was very, like, yes <laughs> I remember when I watched Purple Rain for the first time and now I'm remembering when like Prince died and I know exactly where it was you know People's Movement Center was still a thing I was at work yeah. and I found out in between clients and I remember sitting outside you know and uh on the little step uh and crying you know and yes. then having to Sobbing. put it together because I had a client afterwards you know so my brain is like going in all these different directions including right. and and what you said about feelings I was like oh yes and and now, and that was one of my issues that I was always so direct and blunt, um, yes. which I now understand was part of my neurodivergence. And um, mm. and I was officially diagnosed with autism, uh, with the ADHD, with um, strong autistic traits, or whatever that means. <laughs> but um, yeah. and I I'm not pursuing kind of a further diagnosis, but everybody mm -hmm. around me is like, yeah, autism and ADHD are like <laughs> hand in hand for you. Yes. Um, you know, <laughs> and for trans folks too. Oh my God. And it explains so mm -hmm. much about everything, about gender, about my interactions with people, mm -hmm. um, about the way I was picked uh, on in school for being so unfiltered, you know, in right. a lot of ways. Um, thinking and outside the box. Yes. That's, that's really what it is. It's like, I don't understand. I don't even know what a box is. Why would you put me in a box? And we had a, a guest a few months yes. ago that was just like, you know, be yourself and don't put yourself in a box. And I was like, yeah, boxes are for shoes, you know, free the souls. And that's kind of it. And it's just like, I don't understand why people would want to put themselves in a box. I don't want to be in a box unless I die and I'd actually like to be cremated. So just put me in a fancy jar and put me on somebody's mantle and we'll be fine. You know? And so, uh, so yeah, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm with you. And I'm such a Pisces with cancer rising. I'm like, when I die, just put me in the ground, you know, encompass me. And then I can be part of everything with the, with the fungi, you know. But Did you like, say you were a Pisces with the Pisces rising? Yeah, with cancer rising. So, so much with water. Rising. So much yes, water. With, yeah, so I'm a Scorpio water. with a Libra rising. So oh. I feel like the Libra takes the edge off the Scorpio, which is nice because I have ADHD and autism. I might be too much for people that are in boxes. So, so yes. <laughs> I'm definitely too much for people who are in boxes, like constantly. And, you know, I've tried to make myself smaller, especially moving to the UK in my 20s, uh, feeling that was like so much, you know, which was so weird because in Italy, I was like seen as an introvert. And then I moved mm -hmm. to the UK when I was 22, you know, and people were like, you're so rude and you're so extroverted. And I was like, what? This is news to me, um, mm -hmm. you know, and that about the cultural context but going back to your original question which was about my late diagnosis what happened mm -hmm. was actually that i was experiencing a lot of brain fog um mm -hmm. following um, i also have physical disabilities i have um, a connective tissue disorder called Ehlers-Danlos syndrome i had mm -hmm. a spontaneous cerebral spinal fluid leak 
which mm -hmm. has now been uh, repaired, thankfully. Um, but I was having mm -hmm. a lot of kind of different issues and brain fog, and my doctor puts put me on Stratera, which is a medication for ADHD, but it also has off-label use for brain fog. And so she put me on this low dose of Stratera, and suddenly a lot of things that have been challenging for me historically started to get easy. And um, my partner was like, oh, wouldn't it be funny if you find out that you have ADHD, haha, -ha, kind of moment. And then, exactly, and then mm -hmm. I was talking to a couple of friends and they were like, yeah, friend, you, you have ADHD, right? And I was like, what, what do you mean? Like, what do you <laughs> see? And I feel so right. um, uh, not aware when I tell the story because I'm like, dear Same. God, I'm a therapist with so much experience, including working with neurodivergent folk, which I've always been like, I wonder why so many of my clients are neurodivergent and somehow we like understand each other, right? And so a couple of my colleagues look at me and they're like, you're like the foster child of ADHD. You're always like, have too many projects going on, overly committed. You have no idea how much time things take. Um, and you're always like, you know, trying to scramble, doing all the things. And, um, and I was like, you felt called out, didn't you? I totally felt called out. I was also like, why didn't anybody tell me? And then, then I told my, my oldest, who just basically was like, uh, yeah, duh, when you're on your phone, uh, really difficult to get you to do anything else or to pay attention to anything else. Anyway, so basically yes. I was like, oh, maybe there's something in this. I thought about it, talked about it with my therapist, decided eventually to go for an assessment, not because self-diagnosis is not valid, but because my doctor was like, uh, if you have ADHD, I can increase your medication when we need to, right. but I need a diagnosis to be like first. an official diagnosis first. Mm -hmm. And so I went for a neuropsych assessment, got my ADHD diagnosis, um, and with the strong autistic traits, but also the psychologist who did the assessment was like, Alex, you've been masking so well for 50 years that like, if you want, we can like dive deeper to see if there's also autism. But all I can tell you is that like, you definitely have a very neurodivergent like profile and you're scoring pretty high um, mm -hmm. in kind of that autism quotient scale that they use and you definitely have ADHD. Um, right. And it was such a turning point for me and I'm still coming to terms with that in some ways, right? That, that was mm -hmm. a, it's coming up to a year from the official diagnosis. And so I Same. still feel like I'm digesting. Yeah, I was May 20, 22 when mine I got was, diagnosed. Mine was March 18th. Okay, this is like spooky. Like the good Stop like, being me. Go be yourself. <laughs> I know. Like, so, like the same age, same region. Other, like I was like, how did this happen? It's blowing my mind. <laughs> oh, just so the audience knows, um, we had this discussion during uh, the pre-show, which is if you notice, I'm wearing a Protect Trans Youth uh, shirt. And um, Alex was like, oh, I have a shirt just like that. And I was like, no, you don't. You don't live in Minnesota. You live in Italy. Because I didn't know. <laughs> I was like, this shirt was made by someone who lives in South yes. Minneapolis. What are you talking about? And then eventually we found out that we live in the same state and that they were also going to wear the same shirt today, but they wore it yesterday. And I said, hey, you have 20 minutes. You can change if you want to. So we were going to be the double mint twins, but it didn't work out. So here we are, the same person interviewing each other. Um, if you have a baseball cap, you're free to go get it. Hey, this is Jocko from Stealth, the Transmasculine Podcast. Check out our show, which focuses on the stories of trans men who transitioned before or around the year 2000. Come listen to Jason, who transitioned in 1968, or Jude, who's turning 83 this year. Listen to men of color share their experiences of transitioning into their authentic selves. You can find us on iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and other streaming platforms or on our website, transmasculinepodcast.com. Um, I do have a question from uh, Kamesy, who wants to know, is there anything around gender psychology when you were studying or starting out as a therapist? Yeah. That's a great I mean, question. Yes. Um, anything, like anything at all, or just like, I'm just trying, making sure, it, this is where my autism shows, I'm making sure I understand the question. Oh, no, no, I understand. <laughs> um, there doesn't seem to be anything, and it just says anything around, so there is anything specific, mm. just anything in general. Yeah, I think that, you know, generally, what I noticed when I decided to become a psychotherapist, which was 
after I did my PhD, actually, so I'd already really been studying gender quite a bit, um, mm -hmm. was that we had all this absurd, quite frankly, uh, gender rules when it comes to psychology, right? All the tests are normed according to a binary way, right? Um, if you take a psychological test, it's like, this is how it's normed for men and for women, right? And, and of course, the baseline is not just cisgender, but it's also white. It's also, you know, uh, not disabled generally. It's usually mm -hmm. straight. And so mm -hmm. the baseline didn't really fit my experience at all. And even right. when um, people were trying to come up with models, like I remember we were so excited that we were having our first, like, you know, gay systemic psychotherapist was coming to talk to us about um, same gender families. And he right. presented this model and I was like, well, this model doesn't fit for me. I'm bisexual. And he was like, well, you just adapt it to whatever gender you're partnered with. And I was like, well, I'm also polyamorous. And then he was like, well, now you're just being difficult. And I was like, I'm not being difficult. I'm just telling you that your model, your box doesn't fit my life. <laughs> and so I mean, you can't say that this is going to suit everybody, you know, and it, it just got yeah. really upset at PC. Um, I mean, it's sad because the floor on that model is completely broken. What if a lot of those people were trans? What if they exactly. were non-binary, but there wasn't a language? So the statistics that this test is based off of are actually false. Exactly. Well, and, and that is part of, it is misleading. And that's part of the, the issue. You know, historically, I've also worked for, you know, a university-based gender clinic, which was uh, which used a very different approach to what I use now, where they did a lot of psychological testing. And mm -hmm. I think it was really problematic because none of those tests were really normed for trans and or non-binary people, you know, mm -hmm. and in a way being non-binary or even being a certain kind of queer as a trans person kind of put a question mark on your identity for some mm -hmm. psychologists. And so the whole field was really challenging um, I'm really grateful that I trained as a systemic psychotherapist where there was more appreciation of uh, social and cultural norms and systems of power and oppression. Um, mm -hmm. Whereas I feel in, in psychology, that is still historically not what has happened. And I think that the field overall is still very much struggling with being inclusive. Um, but yeah, there's so much to be said about gender and psychology that I could go on and on. But hopefully that gives you a little bit of a flavor. Um, this is, yeah, this is great because another question came up related to this question, which was, um, Kamesey wondered how the field has accommodated gender diversity. And before you answer that, it can link to this other question in addition, which is, are you familiar with ADHD gender? This is a term used in some online communities defined as a gender so heavily influenced by ADHD that one's ADHD and one's experience of gender cannot be unlinked. Yes, yes, and yes. Oh, my God, so many feelings. Um, I am familiar with the term, and I do feel that over the past year, I have re-examined my gender through a neurodivergent lens anyway, of both ADHD and autism. You know, mm -hmm. I also really uh, connect with the word autigender uh, nowadays, which is where the experience of autism and gender are closely linked, so same principle. But Honestly, for me, that understanding is still in progress because, you know, I'm so new to seeing myself as a neurodivergent person and as a AUDHDer that mm -hmm. I'm really still processing what that means and reviewing so many experiences in my past and going, oh, that makes sense. That, you know, that's why those boxes never felt comfortable. And I always questioned all boxes, honestly. Even as a mm -hmm. Catholic, I was like, is there a hell? I don't think so, which got me in a lot of trouble. And yes, Sunday school, you know, I was yes. like questionable, you know, I was like, if we you're in Sunday school in Italy and you asked that and you said that. Yeah, I was like, I don't think there's a hell. And they were like, what? And I was like, you know, let's really see what Jesus was saying. Like how, you know, I was like, if we take the message in the gospel seriously, I don't, I don't understand how there could be a hell, you know, that those were conversations didn't go super I mean, well. But I don't as know. you can imagine. I, yes, I mean, I do imagine because lately I've been floating around in my brain where everyone's, you know, talking about like they're using the Bible to politicize it so they can make these yes. laws or whatever. And I'm like, you know, I, I had to read the Bible because I was doing a video project for someone and I needed to be able to write the quotes correctly. Mm -hmm. That's my extent of reading the Bible. And so the show was maybe 45 minutes long. 
So that gives you an idea of how much I read. And I'm like, you know, basically the story of Jesus that I've heard and some of the little things that I've read in this, this great tissue book is that, you know, the one message, if it's like on a, on a tablet that Moses or somebody's carrying, it's like, don't be a patootie, just, just be a decent person. And that's right. really it. It's just good manners and love your neighbors. You know, as one of my, one I of mean... my elders <laughs> friends is like, it's just good manners, you know, that's, like yeah. don't go over and mow somebody else's grass unless yeah. they can't do it themselves and they specifically asked you but don't like go run your tractor over on somebody else's lawn just just mind your own business be cool be chill and exactly. just people even if you don't understand me you know because i don't fit in your box just respect me and respect that my life is just as valuable and valid as yours and that i deserve to breathe in this oxygen and and walk my own path like Walt Whitman and Emer Ralph Waldo Emerson and Jesus and Nelson Mandela. You know what I mean? So just oh, yeah. My life, you know. Exactly. Ugh. Yeah. No, there's so, so much about, so many feelings, so much about <laughs> Catholicism that was very questionable and that did question because mm -hmm. I, I was very into the church. I wanted to be a nun. I was like, mm -hmm. I was knee deep in kind of Bible studies. And I was yeah. always like, you know, I was like, why, why convert people? I think that all religions are valid. You know, they're just like, mm -hmm. you know, different ways to understand divinity. Again, did not go great with the, with the nuns and priests around me, as you can imagine. Um, just a little bit. <laughs> exactly. But sometimes I feel like psychology is just as bad as the Catholic church. You know what I mean? I was like, mm -hmm. okay, the Catholic church was like, it's about religion and this dogma. But I feel like mm -hmm. in psychology, there's also a lot of dogma, you know, going back to the question the person was asking, I feel uh, in a way, um, the field of psychology and mental health, uh, in some cases, wants to embrace gender diversity and expansiveness. But mm -hmm. I don't think that we're doing that very well as a field yet at all. I think there is still an othering. I think that most therapists, most cisgender therapists are still more comfortable having trans and non-binary clients rather than colleagues. And some of them are definitely not comfortable having colleagues who are more senior than they are in my experience. And for me, that's cisgenderism, right? That's, that's transphobia, mm. cisgenderism. And so mm. I think that even though the field has good intentions, there is like a underlining, a veiled thing that we are other if we're trans, mm -hmm. non-binary, gender diverse, and we are other, yeah. we are objects of study, not subjects, right? right? I right. think it's changing as more and more trans and non-binary people enter the field, do the research, become therapists. You know, I'm like right. 20 years older than most of the trans and non-binary therapists and psychologists who are doing amazing work in the field nowadays, you know? Right. Um, and, they're doing amazing they work. To be younger. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they're doing amazing work because they're being driven by their neurodiversity. Neurodiversity yes. makes you think outside the box. So in order to do that and to be effective as a therapist, you're going to need neurodivergency to make that happen. I mean, yeah. honestly, otherwise it's the same board that won't pass complex post-traumatic stress disorder because they don't have enough details to make it valid. I'm like, it's totally valid. You know? Oh my God. And it's absurd. The complex PTSD, not only it's a diagnosis I have and that I also work with, with a lot Maybe. of clients, it's like, it's mm -hmm. so... It's so clear to me, you know, like everything we know about uh, developmental trauma and complex PTSD. I'm like, how is this not? I mean, we can also question the whole idea of diagnosis in itself because that's another yes. box. But yes. I was like, how are people still pushing against this? Makes zero sense. But, you know, dominant academia makes zero sense to me, which is why right. eventually I got out. But yeah. I understand that. That's a great, perfect segue for this because we have all these other juicy topics about here to talk about uh, concerning you. You've written Ooh. and are co-written several books and zines. Tell us about your 2020 book, Gender Trauma, and also tell us about the book, How to Understand Your Gender and its companion zine. I can, and I even co-authored a book called Life is a Binary. As no shocker, given that I like boxes. Yes, uh, I am an author. I still feel weird when I say that, but it's true because I have five books out and uh, free okay. under contract. So I guess I'm, I am a real author. Uh, yes. So gender, gender trauma, uh, which actually is one, two awards, is one the Nautilus, Nautilus Award, Gold Seal last year, and then it won the ASIC book for sexuality professional this year, um, was published in 2020. Um, 
it was a book that I carried in my head for a long time, if that makes sense. Yes, congratulations, um, by the way. Thank you. I still feel weird saying things like that because mm-hmm. the imposter syndrome in me still goes, yes. yeah, but is it really that good? You know? Right, yeah, same and, here. Exactly. <laughs> and, and, you know, people at home are like, well, you've now had two completely different and independent bodies look at this book and say it was good enough to give them an award. So there you go. Yeah. And yeah, so, you know. <laughs> But it was a book, I think partially it's because it was a book that's so informed by my neurodivergence, right? It was like my brain kept making all those connections about gender mm-hmm. and trauma. Um, and I honestly wasn't sure if those connections would make any sense to anybody else outside of my brain. But one thing I knew very deeply was that <clears throat> for a lot of people, this rigid gender binary was really not only restrictive, but traumatic and not only on an individual level, but on an historical level, as part of the ongoing settler colonial project, you know, um, Christian supremacy, ongoing settler colonial project, um, you know, also how we cannot talk about gender without talking about race, because the way we're racialized is so connected to who is seen as having a legitimate, in air quote, gender or not, right? Mm-hmm. And so there were all these connections in my brain and in my work with clients and in my work when I was doing trainings, right? Um, I kept hearing stories again and again of how people had been traumatized by the gender binary, either at school or on a family level or a cultural level. And so that's kind of what um, eventually brought the book about. You know, mm-hmm. I talked about it. Uh, I kept uh, writing the book proposal until my editor, literally, I remember I was at Wistan, which is a science, uh, feminist science fiction convention. And I got an mm-hmm. email from my editor at the time going, Alex, I need you to really write this proposal because somebody else has, has proposed a book, which I don't think it's what you want to talk about. And I don't think it's very good. So I need you mm-hmm. to write your proposal. <laughs> and so I was like, okay, Andrew, I'm on it. You know, I focus kicked in got that proposal out in 24 hours, you know? (laughs) Uh, And then I was like, oh God, now I've got a contract. And then I got a contract with Justin Kingsley. And I was like, oh God, I got to write it. Um, And so I wrote it. It was actually a pretty challenging process because um, it is about the trauma of the gender binary um, from kind of this uh, historical perspective in terms of how settler colonialism influences our current understanding of gender um, and how it erased and um, um, and continues to erase and harm indigenous folks all over the globe, as well as uh, on Turtle Island, what we now call the US. And then, mm. you know, went into, you know, impact on trans folks and impact on, um, you know, folks um, who are racialized black at various intersections, right? Black trans folks, black cis folks, the mm-hmm. impact of like family, the impact of purity culture. And so it was pretty hard sometimes I had to just stop and grieve for want of a better word as I was writing yes. this book because there was yes. so much pain, you know, mm-hmm. like th- there's just so much um, pain and harm that has been perpetuated in the name of the gender binary. And that's what I wanted to point out. I wanted to point out the harm. And I also wanted to talk about the healing though, right? If there's been all this harm, if we see this as a wound, you know, on a mental health level or on an educational level, how can we address that wound? Right. And so the book is mainly for like therapists and educators. uh, So there's like clinical vignettes and, reflecting moments. Um, I've also had people, members of the general public read it and say they got quite a bit out of it. But my intention was to really um, put out there what was in my brain, show people what I thought that there was this pervasive wound. And until we, um, you know, if we don't acknowledge it, we can't address it. Right. And so that that's ultimately what the book is about. And, um, and I don't know everything about how to fix it, but hopefully... Mm-hmm. There are some ideas about how to engage with it, if that makes sense. Yes. Yes, it all makes sense. Um, I'd like to dive into it, but in the interest of time, I've got mm-hmm. two more questions that I want to ask yes. you and then one concluding question. But thank you for bringing that up. Mm-hmm. And again, um, the names of uh, the name of this book is called Gender Trauma, 
and another book is called How to Understand Your Gender. And Alex, mm -hmm. what is the companion zine? Can you say that again, please? Yes. Um, we, uh, if you go to my website, which is just alexandtaffy.com, um, Meg John Barker, who's my writing partner and co-author, we just made a zine out of the book so that it would be more accessible to people. And right. how to understand your gender, it was really written for cis folks. I, I know that trans and non-binary folks also have read it and gotten things out of it, but mm -hmm. it's very much a, how do we break down all these ideas of gender as a biopsychosocial cultural phenomenon in a way that it's accessible for the general public, right? Because there was a lot of discourse in queer theory and feminist theory that is very inaccessible to the general reader honestly, mm -hmm. because it's kind of, I mean, I find Judy Butler a little hard to read, you know, when I have a PhD in gender studies. I was like, how mm -hmm. do we make a lot of this information more accessible, which is one of my passions. And so that's how to understand your gender came about. And then just last year, how to understand your sexuality came out. And then McJohn and I are working on how to understand your relationships. So there's going to be like a little triptych um, and McJohn is really into making zines. And so they made a zine out of the book. Um, and I'm hoping to also uh, put some more zines on my website. I just wrote a little ebook about loving beyond binaries as well, which will be on my website this summer. Um, okay. So yeah, I just love putting stuff out there where people don't have to buy anything. They can just download it. And then they're like, oh, this seems worthwhile. Then they can buy wow. the book. Yeah. That's very kind of you. Thank you. Um, second to the last question here. You also co-authored a zine titled Mapping Your Sexuality, which introduces readers to sexual configurations theory developed by Sari Van Anders. Can you briefly explain this theory? And we've got about eight minutes. I still have two more questions. I ask you plus promos. <laughs> so I will probably not explain the theory very well. Although, okay. So, <laughs> so I encourage people to go and download the zine, which is actually now available in multiple languages, including Italian. So what oh, happened was that Sari Van Anders, who's a professor, used to be um, University of Michigan. She's now in Canada. She's a feminist professor. And she came up with this uh, beautiful theory, I think, which was not based on reproduction. So historically, a lot of the theories on human sexuality are very much reproductive based. They're not trans inclusive. They're not inclusive of a wide range of sexuality. Um, and so Sari was really trying to create a theory that better fit human experience, you know, mm. rather than putting a, people in boxes, making the box almost um, customized for everybody. And so mm. the idea with sexual configuration theory is, first of all, it challenges the dichotomy of sex and gender. In fact, Sari talks about sex slash gender as mm -hmm. all one, um, and really, so it really challenges this idea that uh, of biological sex in air quote versus kind of gender identity. So put sex and gender together. Mm -hmm. And it then also divides sexuality uh, between solo sexuality and partnered sexuality. And then it also talks about um, kind of discerning between eroticism in sexuality and nurturance. For example, for some people, the feeling of love and connection is completely um, separate from any feeling of pleasure or arousal. So there is no eroticism necessarily in their relationships. And Sari really believes that there should be a space in tears of human sexuality for folks who experience a nurturance-based sexuality versus an eroticism-based sexuality. And of course, we can also have both. Right. And she's the one who commissioned us and paid us uh, to write the zine, which is freely available to anybody, uh, because she has a commitment to making um, sexual configuration theory more accessible, which is just mm -hmm. as well, because I had to read the paper like 15 times to understand what the theory was before gotcha. we could write the zine. <laughs> and uh, wow. it is now, it's a pretty dense theory, but I think it's beautiful because it really challenges uh, everything we thought we knew about sexuality, and it is very inclusive um, okay. of um, all gender identities, all sexuality. Is it perfect? No, definitely there are some flaws, but I think it's the best attempt we have to date 
of the non-reproductive-based human sexuality theory. Sorry, I went a little academic there for a minute. No, no, that's that's brilliant. <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, the last kind of thing that I would like to ask you, if you're comfortable sharing that, that is, um, what terms do you use for your sexuality and has that changed over your lifetime as well? We touched a little bit about it, but um, can we talk maybe about your pronouns and talk about like everything else, like as far as that too, if you're comfortable? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, it's changed so much over time. You know, um, initially I couldn't even, I, I know this is going to sound so um, weird, but I didn't even feel comfortable with the term genderqueer because all the genderqueer queer people I knew were like very androgynous in their body. And my body was definitely not what I would categorize as an androgynous body. I had lots of curves. I was larger than most of the people I knew that were genderqueer, like in the UK where I was living at the time. And so there were some ways in which I didn't see myself in, in that community, if that makes sense. And so it took me a minute to really address that. Um, I think the way I would describe, and I think my gender and sexuality go hand in hand. If I was totally unfiltered, um, and I know that this word has been used also as a, as a harmful, hurtful term in queer community, but it's also a word that has been reclaimed by a lot of people, uh, including older folks. But if I was really unfiltered, I would say I'm a trans faggot. That is my gender and okay. sexuality. You know, All that's right. really the most accurate description. You know, Can you talk a little bit more about why that's an accurate description for you? Yeah, because for Thank me, you. Um, you know, in my understanding, there is my masculinity is so deeply queer. Uh, and so, is you know, and my sexuality is mostly att being attracted to masculinity, regardless of gender identity. And for me, there's something mm -hmm. about the reclaiming of faggot, which is very much about a reclaiming of uh, a shameless queer gender, right? If I think mm -hmm. about the radical fairies, right? Um, the radical fairies movement, which again, not perfect. And some radical fairies are trans exclusionary, though not all. It's always complicated. But there is something mm -hmm. about being a faggot, which is very much about defying people's gendered expectations of you, mm -hmm. right? I'm going to be myself. I'm going to wear clothes that maybe are you consider too feminine because you read me as masculine. I'm going to put my earrings on. I'm going to wear makeup or not, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, there is kind of a um, shameless declaration of self. And it's also mm -hmm. about people who don't pass. Um, you know, there's yes. a certain ways in which I'm never going to pass as a trans man, not if I really want to be true to myself. Um, right. And I think that's true for people who have been, you know, even my you know, cis gay man, friends and brothers and, and family, like the ones who've been called faggots are the ones who couldn't hide their sexuality. And that's right. how I felt about my gender and sexuality, right? It mm -hmm. cannot be hidden. This is who I am. And so for mm -hmm. me, that's why it feels the most authentic. Now, I usually cannot really use it officially <laughs> because it would require right. so much explanation. Right. And, this is why know, I asked you to explain. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, yes. exactly. You know, mm -hmm. but I think for me, that's why it feels the most resonant. Uh, because, you know, if I had been born a cis man, I truly mm -hmm. believe that would have been the kind of cis man that wouldn't have passed as like straight, right? That right. would have been like as too effeminate or not fitting into the box. Uh, mm -hmm. in some ways. And I just feel right. this affinity, you know, I spent a lot of time in gay male community um, mm -hmm. in lots of different ways. And for me, often those are my people, the people I gravitate to, um, right. because we have some commonality of experience um, mm -hmm. in different ways, but there is a commonality of experience too across our differences. Yeah. Well, okay. spirits find each other and they create a spirit tribe. And that's what I really believe. And so that's why mm -hmm. the whole kind of nonsense around what I consider nonsense around identity for myself mm -hmm. speaking, I just, I can't identify myself with these monikers. So yeah. I'm just, I'm just a human being. And today I feel like this, tomorrow I feel like that, yes. but I'm generally happy. I'm generally joyous. And that's all that really matters. And either you're with it or you're not, and that's okay either way. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> you know, even when people are like, well, you have different pronouns. Which one do you really like? And I'm like, it's it's more complicated than that. It's, it's just, so much more complicated. I have a name. Use my name. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we've got a few closers here. Is there anything 
we missed about neurodivergence, gender, and sexuality that you'd like to make sure you say? Oh my God, probably a lot, because I could talk about this for like the next 20 hours. Right. Um, <laughs> well, you know, we don't look too far from each other, so we're going to have to meet up. <laughs> oh my God. Yes, please. I'm like, we have so much, yes. many things in common. I cannot, I can hardly believe it. That well, I've been meaning to get out there for a while. So yes, let's talk about that. I'm visit. Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. I, I think that if there is something that I really want to say is um, exactly what we've been talking about, not pe putting people in boxes, right? I think we have expectations, right? Well, if you're trans, you need to do those things or you need to experience gender dysphoria or euphoria, right? If you're neurodivergent, you need to present in this way. I was literally told by somebody, you can't have ADHD because you have a PhD. And I was like, I know so many PhDs with ADHD. What are you even talking about? Right. And so how do you I think know. we get those PDHDs, honey? Exactly. Like with our <laughs> special interests. You know, exactly. You need our neurodivergency. Quit it. I was like, there's so many AUDHDers out there who are academics, right? And so I think for me, if there's one thing, it's just like, why do we have to keep trying to categorize? Which is why I never did very, like, that was one of the challenges for me in academia. Uh, that I could do research, but it's like, I am very wary of putting people in boxes. And so let's just make sure that we don't put each other into new boxes and that we don't right. police each other's gender boxes. or neurodivergence just because we're afraid that yeah. other people will police us and then we police ourselves first and i'm like let's yeah it just makes me sad when i see that happening within our community you know what i mean yeah, like i do are you really you know in air quotes trans right. are you really autistic right and i'm like can we just not do that. Uh, <laughs> Can like, we not? Don't like be Can we not? Exactly. Also, like, where, you tell me, where is the line? Where do I kind of, where do I stop being cis? Like, where does somebody stop being cisgender, right? Where does somebody stop being autistic? Like, it's not like there's like, it's like geopolitical borders. They never made sense to me. I think cultural borders, sure, but geopolitical borders, terrible. And I feel the same around those kind of identities. When we police them, we are just buying into a carceral logic, which hurts us. And it's yes. really something that uh, I wish we could all move away from in community. Yeah, it feels like a self-imposed um, incarceration, for sure, I believe. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's a mm -hmm. form of assimilation. And I understand mm -hmm. that it's about protecting ourselves in some ways, but I truly don't think that's a way to protect ourselves in our communities. Well, I mean, there's a matter like you do need ego to protect yourself, but there's a difference between being um, having an ego and being egomaniacal. And then exactly. once you start branching off into egomaniacal behavior, um, then it's then you're in the blame mode where you're blaming yourself, you're blaming everyone around you, and nothing will ever make you happy, nothing will ever please you, and whatever you need to make you happy isn't outside of yourself; it's contained within, and so. Yes that requires silence and, and listening to the scary thoughts in your head and working with those, you know, making friends with your fears and scary thoughts. Um, yes. Can you, can you share an experience of gender euphoria? Ooh, I probably can. It's a little challenging because I feel like I haven't gone anywhere much in the last three years, but, All right, right. but I really <laughs> actually one of my favorite experience of gender euphoria was when many years ago, like 15 years ago, I think I went to Disney World for the first time in Florida. Wow. And I arrived, at each, we went for like a long weekend. I had this like group hunts to stay at the Nickelodeon Hotel and we got to the Ooh. Nickelodeon Hotel, right? Yes. And, uh, you know, I went to check us in and the person went, okay, and uh, where is your wife? And I went, it's the six foot seven dude back there. That's my wife. Um, was, you know, one of my partners of 23 years. And the face of the cleric was so beautiful. And I felt it was a moment of gender euphoria for me because in a way, you know, she was reading me as uh, male and straight. And I just challenged that because it's like, that's my wife, the, the British tall dude over there, you know, six or seven, and that definitely stands out. Nice. Um, right, with my kids over there. And uh, yeah, even though it was many years ago, that still makes me chuckle when I think about it. And, and I love when I can challenge people to think like, don't put me in a box. The box is so much bigger. Let's not make assumptions. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. and I'm doing it. I didn't want her. I didn't want to humiliate her or make her feel bad. I, I hope that it was a humorous way 
to mm-hmm. invite her to maybe uh, not gender people so easily in the future. Well, right. Like I'm not into shaming folks about it. No, it's, it's, exactly. You know, people are learning, you know, because not only were yeah. we raised in a box, so was everybody else that's cisgender exactly. straight. Right. And so it's like, you know, sometimes you have to put up the emotional labor to, to do the even exchange to educate people, but also educating yourself on how to be able to educate people without shaming them. Exactly. And that's really you know. key. Exactly. Because really she was cute. like, I'm sorry. And I was like, no, it's all good. Like, we're, yeah. we're fine. Not a problem at all. You know, right. I just right. thought it was funny. And she was like, well, it kind of is a little bit funny. And then we laughed together. And it was great. Yeah, that's it. You're <laughs> learning and loving together. That's perfect. What yeah. would you like to make sure folks know about your perspective on gender and non-binary trans issues? Oh, that's great. I think that my perspective is... Um, often a little bit challenging because a lot of my ideas, and it's similarly with my writing partner, Meg John, uh, Mm -hmm. go beyond just one community. You know, Um, Mm -hmm. even life isn't binary. It's not just about non-binary folks. It's about how we can approach not just gender and sexuality in a non-binary way, but also Mm -hmm. relationships and bodies and thinking. And so for me, it's like um, my approach is very much about uh, challenging any of those boxes, even the boxes between trans and cis and non-binary and all of those other boxes, like it's a lot of questioning. Do we need those boxes? Why do we need those boxes? And if we need those boxes, who gets to decide who's in the box and who's outside of the box, right? And so for me, it's really an invitation. And in a lot of my work, there is an invitation, first of all, not to other, other people, Right, an yes. invitation for everybody to think about their gender and sexuality, for example, mm-hmm. not just trans and non-binary people, because we have to do it by default because we don't fit into normative ideas of gender. But I think mm-hmm. everybody needs to look at our, you know, we need all need to look at our gender. We all need to look at the way our brains work. And mm-hmm. does the way my brain work fit with normative ideas of our brain should work or not? Um, right. And so it's, I don't know, I think that is really at the heart of my work is challenging those boxes, challenging those binaries, challenging those borders, who I think are very artificial and very questionable. I do agree with all of that. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a whole nother. I've got a yes. note here that we're we're plotting to bring you back because the community <laughs> is loving the convo. Oh. I, I think I think it should be like a two hour thing. We have so many things to talk about. <laughs> I've done that sometimes when I record my episodes. I'm like, no, this is a three hour episode, which I've broken down in three parts because <laughs> right, come back for more. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we love Alex- that. Thank you so much for being on the show today. It was a thrill. It was educational. It was a pleasure. It was pure joy. And it just made me very happy. And uh, I'm going to do some cross promo for you here so we can make people, make sure people know where to find you. Uh, Alex Yantepi, PhD, MS, SEP, CST, LMFT, they, them, Louis, is a family therapist, WPATH certified gender specialist. Um, an ASECT certified sex therapist, somatic experiencing practitioner, clinical, cl- clinical, sorry, clinical supervisor, and award-winning author. They have researched, presented, and published extensively on gender, disability, sexuality, and relationships. More information is available at alexyantefi.com. And you'll see that pop up on your screen there if you're watching this. And socials, I'm assuming this is your Instagram, at X-T-A-F-F-I. And the Clouder query question is, and we came up with this uh, today uh, while we were prepping for the show, and so it's very strong. We're just going to let you know that now. So the content warning is strong. That's the content warning. Um, How are you supporting yourself and those around you during this time of rising fascism? Yeah, right. I was trying to it. put it a different way, but I was like, that's really what I want to say. I, I yes. know, like I saw the way that you wanted to put it, which was how are you assessing gender comfort <laughs> and community in the midst of ongoing hostility towards trans, non-binary and gender expansive people? And I looked at you and I was like, Alex, what was it you just want to say? And it came out, how are you supporting yourself and those around you during this time of rising fascism? I'm like, that's what we, yeah, just say it. Yeah, you know, I was trying to modulate myself so it wasn't too much, you know, and, and I love that. 
Were you trying to get yourself in a box? We just talked I about was, boxes for I know. an hour. I know. And then you read my very normative bio, you know, like my work bio. And I was like, oh, I have so many feelings. We could we could talk about any any one of those. But yes. <laughs> we'll bring you back and we'll do that. Okay, coming soon. Next week's guest will be They Bay, They Them. And we are discussing the intersection of trans rights and racial justice. All right. We're going to go ahead and sign off on this. Um, thanks, everybody, for watching and for listening. And um, we'll catch you next time. Thank you so much for having me as a guest. So appreciated. Thank you for taking the time to be here. Really appreciate yeah. it. Thank you. Thank you. Jennifer would like to thank our guests for being on this podcast. If you'd like to catch us live, join us on Mondays at twitch.tv forward slash gendermaster. Show notes will appear in the edited version of the show on Fridays on both YouTube and podcasting platforms. If you have a question you would like the host to answer or are gender diverse and would like to request an interview, please send an email to genderfulpodcast at gmail.com or sign up via the website at genderfulpodcast.com. As a gender diverse community, The Clatter wants to assure our listeners that we are prepared to moderate our spaces. We will get positive and negative feedback on these shows and topics, and we have a moderation team on our channels, socials, and Discord server ready to deal with this. Please join our Discord server at discord.gg forward slash meowster to meet the community and get a regular digest of solidarity resources. You can also support us with subscriptions on Patreon, following and reviewing us on your favorite podcasting platform are engaging with our posts and content on social media at genderfulpod and at gendermeowster. You can take a few moments to also rate the show. We will post any five-star reviews on our socials, so get creative. Mention a special interest of your own, a project you're working on, or even say hi to your comfort person in your review. What power? This show is made possible by volunteers, tips, and subscriptions. Shout out to the folks helping us coordinate guests, edit the podcast, moderate the live chat, and post on our socials. Artist credit for Jennifer. Jennifer's theme song is called Hope by Free Range Megs, a.k.a. Soma. The Gender Master logo was designed by That's Barnaby and edited with consent by Trans Griffin. Jennifer's pre-show is wrangled by Juice Tex. Genderful is edited and mixed by Trans Griffin and Alexis Vandom. Genderful's social media is managed by Queer to Help. Genderful is hosted by Atlas O. Phoenix and Gender Master. Genderful is the intellectual property of Gender Master. All rights reserved. Trans, Trans rights, rights are human, human rights. rights. That's right. right.